Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. Talk about some of the more interesting aspects of business of sports. There's all kinds of cool questions, so this is a fun topic to me. The country is finally getting the memo about how amazing this sport is. I think the sky's the limit for MLS. We're spending more and more of our time in a digital world, and it's also becoming a really powerful place for commerce. It is so nice to be back and to be able to have fans back in the building. So despite the chaotic schedule, this is why we do what we do. When you get into the playoffs, there's nothing better as a player than excitement and it's also for the organization sponsors involved bloomberg business of sports from bloomberg radio this is the bloomberg business of sports show where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports i'm michael Barn. i'm scarlet foo and i'm mike lynch coming up today together for a shared future that's the motto of the olympic winter games underway in beijing we have a special guest to break it all down hall of fame short track speed skater and America's most decorated winter Olympian, Apollo Ono, joins the show. That's straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. But first, let's look at some of the top stories of the week, and there are a lot. Uh, let's start, first of all, the Washington football team. They have a new name. We are the Commanders. That's right, boy. We are rolling on the field. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I know there are people that have their thoughts about uh, the commanders, but let's ask what now commanders head coach Ron Rivera has to say. The commanders stood out the most, and, and it was kind of interesting to look at the possibilities with that name. So really excited about, you know, the fact that we are really starting a new chapter. You know, we're turning a page, we're going forward. Rivera spoke on CBS. Scarlett, what do you think? This was an 18-month-long process, and I'm sure they hired several branding experts to work through all of this. I like it, although I feel like it's too many syllables. I personally, and I think, Barb, we talked about this earlier, Washington Generals would have been good. I think the Hogs General Washington, Washington Generals. I like that. I like what you said about the Generals there. But but there was another team called the Generals, wasn't there, back in another league, another day? There's two, actually. They were the New Jersey Generals of the USFL back in the mid-1980s, owned by Donald Trump. Ah. The year lasted one year. But the Washington Generals are the team that plays the Harlem Globetrotters all the time. Oh. Whose lifetime record is like okay. zero and 6,000. Okay, okay. So there's a little bit of a legacy to work with. Yeah, there. yeah. So you kind of want to stay away from that one. You know what came to my mind right away? Uh, in college, I used to jog through the Cambridge Common, and there's this granite pillar on the ground under this elm tree, and it says, on this spot, General Washington took command of the Continental Army on July 3rd, 1775. And when I first started, I said, Washington Commanders, Commander General Washington took over, and he was the first Commander-in-Chief and Father of our country, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there's a lot of connotations you can put with Commander. It's usually a, a naval term, mm-hmm. but it also means someone that's in charge. I still say the Hogs would have been great. Can you imagine all the <laughs> calls you could have? The Hogs are grunting in the red zone for the Bears. Oh, this has been great, man. You're just I thinking about it. it from an announcer point of view, right? Oh, heck, that would have been excellent. 
this next story, though, this is this is very serious, uh, and yep. it involves a former Miami Dolphins head coach, Brian Flores. He has filed a lawsuit this past week alleging racial discrimination in the NFL's hiring practices, saying many African Americans in the league feel like interviews for head coaching positions are shams. And he spoke to CBS about the NFL's Rooney Rule, a policy that requires NFL owners to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coaching positions. The Rooney Rule is in- intended to give minorities an opportunity to sit down in front of uh, ownership, but I think what it's turned into is an instance where guys are just checking the box. Scar, th- this is one, I- you see these kind of lawsuits from time to time in the league, but this one is really, I know we use the phrase, this is a bombshell, but this really is a bombshell. Yeah, this was, because when Brian Flores was fired as coach of the Miami Dolphins last month, a lot of people were kind of bewildered. He had turned that team around. He had a winning season, um, in fact, a back-to-back winning seasons, and it wasn't totally clear why he was fired. Uh, In this lawsuit, he alleges that he was essentially told to tank to to do badly in the season so that the Dolphins could get a better draft pick and the owner Stephen Ross pretty much uh, wanted him to do that he wouldn't do it so that's one reason why um, he was fired then what you were talking about with regards to the Rooney rule I mean the anecdote and the evidence that he provides is pretty compelling he said that he was interviewed by the New York Giants for the head coach position, um, and it was on the schedule. And he got a text message from Bill Belichick, mm. who had said, congratulations, I hear you're in the lead or you're going to be hired. Um, and then it turns out that Bill Belichick had meant to text Brian Dable, oops, uh, who is mm. white, because um, he's also a candidate for this position. The irony in all of this is that it happened before uh, Brian Flores' interview was even supposed to take place, or was scheduled to take place. Yeah, it was an error by Bill Belichick. Obviously, both men coached under Bill Belichick. Both have the first name of Brian, and when he went into his, presumably, contacts. when he contacts, he went Brian, and then afterwards he says, oops, I blanked up. Sorry about that. And that was it. That was it. And now, this was the day <laughs> Brian, uh, Brian Flores had yet to be interviewed by yeah. the Giants, but they had already made up their mind because, obviously, Bill Belichick has close ties to the Mara family in the, in the Giants organization. I know Brian Flores pretty well. He played here at Boston College. He coached 15 years under um, Bill Belichick before he got his job. He had two great years, 10-6 and six and 9-7. and seven. I do know that the offer to tango in the tank so they can get Tua is a true story. Mm-hmm. I heard that a number of times before that. And uh, this, you know, Brian Flores is going to be the Kurt Flood of the National Football League. I'm not sure he'll get another head coaching job again, but he's doing this for himself and all the other qualified, overqualified black candidates for executive positions, administrative positions, and head coaching positions in the National Football League. This is a brave, brave step by Brian Flores. There are 70% of black players in the NFL and only Mm -hmm. one NFL head coach. Right. And they keep going to the same well of head coaches, too, right? You can get fired by one team, and the next season you'll get picked up by another team. It's just this ongoing carousel of the same coaches that get picked up when, in fact, fresh blood would be a good thing. And the Rooney rule is meant to address that, but as Brian Flores says, if it's just a check-the-box exercise and the owners have already made up their mind on who they want to hire, then it's really nothing more than just a, you know, I got to do it because I got to do it because the league says so, but it's a done deal.
Yeah, and he alleges he went out to Denver to interview for the Broncos job, and John Elway and the general manager showed up an hour late, and he alleges they were hung over and the deal was already done, and they hired Vic Fangio. Yeah, John Elway showing up drunk, allegedly, is not a sign that he's taking this interview seriously. I mean, just imagine if you went into an interview, this is your big moment, and the guy comes in late and hung over. How seriously is he taking that? Before we wrap up, we got to talk about Tom Brady. Yes, yes, the GOAT has retired. Scar, you're talking 22 seasons, 20 with the Patriots. There is no question this man is the greatest of all time. Yeah, and NFL fans, Patriots fans in particular, have a lot to think uh, when it comes to Tom Brady. But I'm also excited that he is stepping aside and we can really see this new generation of quarterbacks. And we kind of saw it with uh, Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes during the playoffs, how exciting it's going to be to have a whole new crop of quarterbacks. And it was a big... uh outroar especially in the new england area that when he (laughs) when brady posted on instagram and later on twitter they didn't thank the patriot fans well no mention of the team right well no but he played here in october and beat the patriots and he spent a half hour with bill belichick he went around and thanked every person that worked at gillette stadium he thanked the crowd he was over the pa system and when he left here two two years ago uh his first sentence was uh, to all my teammates coaches executives and staff coach belichick robert Kraft, and the Kraft family i want to say thank you blah 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 and one final note i'll put here since this is the business of sports Hit us with some money numbers. It's the Kraft family that should be thanking Tom Brady, which they did. Kraft did in in a statement because when Robert Kraft bought this team in 1994 for $172 million, last month Forbes ranked the Patriots organization as the seventh most valuable sports franchise on the planet at $5.88 billion. That's thank you enough, I think. $172 172 million? That, yep. That's laughable now. It is. <laughs> Considering how much everyone says the Broncos will go for. Yeah. 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 By the way, they're up for sale. So Finally. They, I guess the family feud is kind of ceased for a moment. So now, <laughs> hey, if you want to buy a football team, the Denver Broncos, they're right out there. They could go, you know what? They could go for $4 billion. Yeah. That the average the NFL club is worth $3.5 billion. Yeah. And yeah. Lynchy, how much were you saying the, the Patriots Five, are worth? Just shy of six, 5.88. Oof. You know, I, and I, uh, before we move on, I, I got to say, I was thinking of a number of the week, and I was thinking, <laughs> you know, w- since we're talking about Tom Brady, how much did Robert Kraft buy the team? And I'm like, you know what? That's like asking Lynchy, how many fingers you got on your hand? Yeah, I know. He could, he could recite that number in his sleep. <laughs> Up next on the show, Bloomberg News reporter Karumi Mori joins us from Beijing. Plus, we catch up with short track speed skater and Olympic Hall of Famer Apollo Ono. That's straight ahead on Bloomberg Business of Sports. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scarlett Foo. You can follow me on Twitter at Scarlett Foo. And I'm Mike Lynch on Twitter at LynchyWCVB. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. 
And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And you know what that sound means. The 2022 Winter Olympics is underway in Beijing, and we are pleased to say that Bloomberg's Karumi Mori is on the ground there covering it all for us. Karumi, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I, I want to start, first of all, It's and I know this sounds like a general question, but does it feel like, you know, it's the Olympics? I mean, does it? are we getting that feeling now that, okay, here we go. I mean, I know there's, you know, there's limit to the crowd and everything, but is there some sort of Olympic feeling? Oh, yes and no. I have to say that because this is a tightly controlled bubble, when we were going from the airport to our Olympics prepared hotel, there are banners everywhere. There are signs that say Beijing 2022. You see the the two mascots on poster boards everywhere in the city. But because there will be no spectators and we are closed off physically, there is a fence around the Olympic venues, we are not in touch with the public at all. When I talked to uh, Beijing locals here online, of course, they told me that, you know, there's not much excitement for the Games, especially because this is happening. The opening ceremony is happening during the Chinese Lunar New Year holiday. That's when everybody is trying to go home, spend time with their families, trying to leave Beijing uh, sometimes. And the Olympics is making that logistically very, very hard. So some of them say, uh, this may not be the time for the Olympics. We rather celebrate the biggest holiday of the year with our families. Um, but of course, others who love sports, who doesn't love watching the games? Hosting the games is always very disruptive to the city, and you know this firsthand because you're based in Tokyo and you covered the Tokyo Olympics, the 2020 Olympics, which became the 2021 Olympics last year. Can you compare and contrast what it's like in Beijing versus Tokyo? Absolutely. It feels very, very different. Tokyo also, we were experiencing a number of COVID cases in the city. There was some nervousness. I talked about muted excitement throughout the lead-up to the Tokyo Games as the numbers were starting to really rise uh, as the opening ceremony was about to happen. But there was still that sense of, oh, the Olympics are here and all of these international broadcasters and athletes are coming into Tokyo. Uh, there's definitely a sense of excitement within with the business owners around the stadium. And that's partly because even though there was a so-called bubble, it was very loose. I, as a local reporter, was able to go home to my own apartment every single night after reporting on the game. In Beijing, it's completely different. Nobody is going home. Nobody comes in or goes out of the bubble until the games are over. 
Hey, Romy, it's Mike Lynch up in, in Boston. Uh, take me through your daily ritual, what it will be, how long it will take you. Let's say you want to go watch speed skating. How long it will take you to get into a venue, what you have to go through every single day? Yeah, so every day when I wake up, the first thing I do is go take a PCR test. I go step outside my hotel, which is, again, fenced off a tall green fence all around the hotel, but there is a little hut outside of the entrance where I'm allowed to walk and go towards the hut, which has two holes for hands. There is somebody in there. I can't even see her face. Hmm. She's in full hazmat suit from head to toe, but she takes out her hand and swabs my throat uh, to take my COVID test. Um, And that's it. And then I just go back to the hotel, but then this starts my journey into going to a venue. I cannot take a regular taxi. I can't even walk outside of my fenced hotel area, so I can't even go for a jog. I have to use the transport provided by the Olympics. So that is basically a bus, a shuttle service that goes from one hotel to venue ABC, and from there I take another shuttle. So if I was to go to speed skating, I have to go to the main press center first, And from there, I have to go to the speed skating oval. So that could take about two hours. I would say I waited for the shuttle this morning for about 30 to 40 minutes. This is hopefully some of the kinks uh, that we can iron out as the days go on. Um, But again, COVID Olympics, just like Tokyo, it just takes a very long time because we are using Olympics-provided transport and not allowed to take anything else that would put us in contact with the public. Sounds like you can't change your plans either. If you're committed to speed skating, you can't decide to check out figure skating, for instance. Yeah, it might take some time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first statement, bring back some goodies because we want good souvenirs. Bring back a gold medal. First of all, that's what we want. And then second of all... Just one gold medal. Just one. Well, yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Just at least one. We'll all share it. The the other one uh, I, that I did want to ask, uh, a lot more serious, is that, and obviously with COVID, uh, it has been a huge economic impact on China hosting the games. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, well, you know, for China, this is really President Xi Jinping's shining moment to show China as this improved version of itself. In 2008, it hosted the Summer Games. Now it's hosting the Winter Games. It's becoming the, it's basically the first city ever to host both the summer and the winter. Uh, several times, uh, President Xi Jinping has said, and I put in quotes, that he is pledging to put on a simple, safe, and splendid game. Again, the virus measures in hopes of taming COVID are super, super tough. But again, you know, Beijing is putting a lot of pressure on itself to host a successful games, and that's part of why the virus measures are so tough. They're saying the cost of putting on the Winter Games costs $3.9 billion. On paper, that's the least except expensive games in the last two decades. Uh, again, that number is debatable. We've seen one report saying it could be 10x that, so that's closer to $39 billion. Um, but, you know, For Beijing, like any other city, any other country like China, putting on the games comes with a lot of hope that they will put their best foot forward, show their country in the best light. 
it's it's one of the the most exciting things that brings the whole world together. And the U.S. led diplomatic boycott is putting a damper on it in the political sense, uh, but it doesn't mean anything for the sports itself. It's really a symbolic uh, movement, and it'll be a story at the opening ceremony because U.S. politicians won't be there. Canadian politicians won't be there. British politicians, not there either. Um, Japan announced it won't send a government delegation. But I actually saw Seiko Hashimoto today in the main press center. She was the head of the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee. She was touring the press center. And she's an upper house lawmaker. So you could say she's a government representative. And she's in Beijing. Um, other people who are here are going to be here, Vladimir Putin, uh, technically, Russia is banned from the Olympics, but there was a loophole in that ruling that allows him to be a personal guest of President mm. Xi Jinping. We learned today also Taiwan will attend the opening ceremony after all, reversing an earlier decision after getting pressure from the IOC to be here. So that's, you know, just last week, Taiwan said its government officials are skipping the game uh, due to COVID and, and trouble with travel. But the <laughs> IOC reportedly set notices requiring all teams to send personnel to the ceremony. So now Taiwan is adjusting their plans to cooperate with the policy. It's all, um, you know, good for China for more and more delegates to come. Yeah, the politics of this is just fascinating. And it's interesting that the IOC is stepping in to put pressure on Taiwan. I'm curious about the weather because you mentioned Beijing being uh, the first city to host a Summer Olympics and a Winter Olympics. Um, one thing has been made clear, which is there's not a lot of natural snowfall in Beijing, and they're going to be hosting a lot of skiing events. How is that working out with the weather the way it is? I'm looking at the 10-day forecast. It's going to be a high 48 degrees uh, Fahrenheit on Wednesday, February 9th. They've had to make a lot of artificial snow, and some people worry that that may compromise the performance of these Olympic athletes as well. Yeah, that's exactly that, that's exactly right. Uh, Beijing is the main hub of the games, but there are two other zones, Yanqin and Zhangjiakou. Those are the in the mountains uh, for the ski resorts. But even there, uh, the maximum it snows there is about two inches. So it really there really is very little snow, natural snow. Skiers and snowboarders will compete in the first Winter Olympics to rely completely on artificial snow. Uh, that means that it, it's not very eco-friendly, as they've been saying it will be, uh, because of the amount of water usage. Uh, experts are saying that the area is actually uh, a place for water shortage, and the making of the snow requires a lot of energy and water. Uh, so the two cities northwest of the capital that I just mentioned, the two zones, are hosting the outdoor skiing events. Something I noticed after landing here um, and spending a few days, my hands are so dry. The air just feels super dry. So I can understand that you know this may not be the best uh, winter sports uh, venue or the winter sports city, uh, and that's that's another thing the experts are saying, that this is not the best place or time to host the Winter Olympics. Romy, what kind of access does the media have to the athletes? Any chance for one-on-ones? Is Good it question. all done virtual? Uh, is it all done press conference style? 
Yeah, that, that's something that we experienced in the Tokyo Olympics as well. Uh, there are some press conferences that have already been scheduled. Uh, we get notices from each Olympic committee. Uh, so there are in-person press conferences, but they are limited. Uh, you have to reserve a seat. Uh, the press rooms are not too huge. They're within the media center. There are some that are scheduled. Others we are requesting via the Olympic Committee again to get access to certain athletes online. Um, some of the athletes I spoke to don't want to give full interviews right now because they want to focus on the games. That hasn't changed much from other, other, uh, other times in the Winter Olympics and Summer Olympics. Uh, but again, because of the COVID protocols, there's less doorstepping. We can't just grab an athlete and, and interview them. The access is, is definitely limited compared to Pyeongchang, for example. So just like Tokyo Olympics, there are more hurdles. Uh, there's a greater barrier between the press and the athletes. But the IOC, the National Olympic Committees, are making efforts to try to mitigate that by providing more opportunities for online press conferences. Thanks, Karumi. That's Bloomberg News reporter Karumi Mori on the ground in Beijing. Up next on the show, he is the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympian ever. Stay tuned for our conversation with short track speed skater and Hall of Famer Apollo Ono. That's straight ahead on Bloomberg Business of Sports. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scarlett Foo. On Twitter, I'm at Scarlett Foo. And I'm Mike Lynch at Lynchy WCVB. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I remember seeing that, and I just, I, I can't say what I said at first, because I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness gracious, and I'm sure you've heard that before, he is the most decorated Winter Olympian in U.S. history. That was Hall of Fame short track speed skater Apollo Ono capturing the gold at the 2006 Winter Olympics in Italy, and we are pleased to have him on the show. Thank you for joining us, Apollo. Thanks for having me. The first thing I have to start, any athlete in the Olympics... Literally, the world is watching. I can't imagine the pressure that 
is on any athlete at that time? Well, there's a tremendous amount of pressure, I think, for every athlete. But there's also, I think, a, a tremendous amount of like joy and happiness that they have, you know, trained so hard. They have made this Olympic team, and now, you know, metaphorically speaking, they're kind of ripping open the curtain to show the world and themselves um, all of that hard work and dedication uh, in that split moment in time. So. While I think that you know, there's obviously a ton of external pressure uh, that we've seen that kind of you know leaks into kind of the, the athlete mentality. But really, most in, and, and important is that the athletes are there and they've been through this process before, right? The ice rink is exactly the same as it was two years ago, one year ago, three months ago. There's nothing that's actually changed mechanically, but I think we do definitely host this competition on a pedestal. And because of that, you know, it feels like uh, a decade or sometimes two decades is really teetering on this moment in time that only lasts 40 seconds long, in which the difference between the person crossing the finish line first is very close to the person who is off the podium. And that's sometimes just two finger snaps. And so I think you're right. There's a lot of pressure. The athletes have done a ton of sports uh, psychology training, but it's, uh, it's a part of the game. Also part of the game is when you win uh, and you get a gold medal put around your neck, uh, you get lots of opportunities to monetize. Uh, you become an ambassador for brands and you're able to, I don't want to say cash in, that's the wrong word, but you're really able to strike some business opportunities. However, we're in a situation now where athletes travel all the way to China. They may test positive. They may be in quarantine when they're supposed to be competing. That takes away that possibility for them to get those endorsements. How do you think that plays out? I mean, how much of that is part of an Olympian's journey? I think the cold, hard truth about the Olympic journey is uh, it, it's not really been financially incentivized in the same way that perhaps many other professional sports are. Uh, you're absolutely right. When an athlete goes to Olympic Games and something happens that perhaps is outside of their control, they get sick, they test positive, something weird happens where they're just not on their game, <clears throat> and then you take that decade-long sacrifice and, and, and dedication, and at least from an outside perspective, looks like it's gone forever and there's no real value there. And so it is tough, right? The, the fleeting window in which an Olympic athlete wins a medal and then goes on television shows, does the media circuit, mm -hmm. is celebrated by brands, embraced by Americans all over the country, um, seems to, at least from the data we've seen, be getting shorter and shorter. And by the way, that 15 minutes of fame was really short before. Um, I was very blessed in my career to be able to, to, to receive a lot of that benefit. But you have to remember, for every one person, for every Sean White, for every Michael Phelps, for every one of someone who's like me, there is the 99% of the athletes who perhaps win silver or bronze or just off of the podium where they'd work just as hard. They put in just as much time, but they have no recognition. There is no celebration and sponsorship associated. And I think that that is perhaps not dissimilar to many other industries, whether it's the entertainment industry where, you know, two to maybe 5% of all of the actors in the world make predominantly most of the money. Um, it's really no different in the Olympic space. I just think that the, the time frame in which that opportunity exists is actually quite short. So, 
you know, some of the things that we have been focusing on is how do we develop these insights and skills as athletes to transfer when they're going beyond sport, when they need to reinvent and they have to lose that first identity that they were married to into the next identity, which is what's next? What else am I good at? How can I provide and be as productive um, as I can in my communities and in my society? And so that transition is very, very difficult as it is for every person. And hopefully we can start to see a lot more of those Olympic athletes really contributing in a way that I think help businesses, entrepreneurs, uh, and themselves thrive post-Olympic career. Hey, Apollo, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston. The athletes in Beijing will be competing over the next few weeks without any people in the stands, without the crowd. Every athlete is fueled by the crowd, especially when things are going well for them. How difficult would it be for you to perform at your absolute best with an empty rink? Well, it, it's definitely going to be a different experience. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that these athletes are and have no additional needed, um, <clears throat> I think, motivation when they're at the games, whether there's you know, a million people watching or there's two coaches watching. The athletes are driven and focused in a way that they want to perform their best. Now, as it relates to me specifically, I loved having the crowd there. I loved knowing that my father was in the stands, like cheering and watching, and he was on the edge of his seat. My friends and other family members and teammates, that was an important part of my experience of the games. And, you know, I, I think we just have to be real. It, man, it sucks. It sucks that the athletes cannot have their families there. We live in a very uncertain time. The rules are outside of our control. Um, this is a, a foreign nation that's hosting the games on their rules and under their timeline. And so I think that that's been a real challenge. And you are, you are going to see athletes perform well, and you're going to see athletes perform not so well, depending on who's in the actual audience. Some athletes rise to the occasion. There's athletes that really thrive upon being clutch, right? The athlete that loves the roar of the stadium or loves the roar of people chanting their name. That doesn't exist. We're going to see silent uh, competitions, and it almost feels like it's going to be a little bit of a test event. Um, we have these things where they call test events about you know one month to four months in advance of the Olympic Games where the athletes go and train and compete on the actual ice surface or at the location that's specified. And so it's going to be different. But I think, you know, my advice would be to those athletes is, look, this is your time. Regardless of these external conditions, you have to master the fact that you are here for a specific purpose and what is really the most important thing to you. Because unfortunately, in 20 years, when we look back upon the history books, I don't think there's going to be an asterisk next to the results name. It's not going to say Apollo Odo wins, asterisk, oh, but there was also COVID-19 and these other things that were happening and there was no fans. I don't think it's going to say that. It's just yeah. going to say the result. I guess one of the biggest questions I have to ask, that has to be uh, a head full of knowledge, and that led to your book, Hard Pivot. Can you tell us all about that? Yeah, the Hard Pivot book, I mean, it was written over the past two and a half years, was really um, a combination of my own kind of radically transparent experiences of my own what I call great divorce. And I was married to the world of the Olympics and the path of speed skating. And at the snap of a finger, when I decided to retire 12 years ago, um, you know, I was forced with this decision of what am I really going to do next? What else can I do next? I had put everything else on hold in my life. Nothing else seemed to be as important. And also I was externally told that this is what I was built for. This is what I was here for. And this is what I was celebrated for. And so 
I no longer had those head nods of approval from my coaches and teammates and the fans and the Olympic environment as a whole. And now I was starting to pour that cup out early. And so the whole purpose of this book is to help people identify with their own purpose, embrace change in a way that uh, we understand is critical and necessary for us to transform and be our best self and to show up fully, knowing in wholeheartedly that life sometimes throws you these circumstances that are outside of your control, but how we perceive those those problems into challenges and then into opportunities is uh, at the sole heart of what this book is really all about. You had five golden principles, which apply not only to athletics, but to business, to students, uh, in any walk of life. Could you just run through them and why they mean so much to you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So the five golden principles are to me, uh, some of the fundamentals that I've seen not only with myself, but also many other people uh, that I've spoken to around how they've reached this level of both success and reinvention. And so it starts in this order. It's gratitude. It's giving. It's grit. It's gearing up your personal expectations. And it's getting into action. We've seen the data and the science around gratitude putting in you a state, of, putting you in a state of mind that is present, thankful, and appreciative. We know giving is not only to others, but it's also the power of how when you give yourself the best possible chance of success. And so, like many people, I was a self saboteur. I would sometimes get in my own way because I didn't believe that a I either deserved to win, deserved what I was after, and or I was afraid of not of showing up fully and it just not being enough. And so. Move those speed bumps and hurdles that you're placing before yourself. Grit is pretty self-explanatory. Anyone who has been alive over the past 24 months knows how challenging this environment has been. Um, and grit is our ability to embrace what's to come, to embrace the fact that the journey is not easy uh, and be ready and dynamic and on our toes for what is to come next. Gearing up our personal expectations, this is something that I think that some of the greatest performers have always had, which is if you're ready for a change, as many people have written in their January 1st New Year's resolutions, sometimes there comes a point in your life when you say enough is enough. I'm ready to make that change. And that internal switch that goes on requires you to say, how do I raise, how do I raise my standard of excellence for myself? And how do I keep myself accountable for those types of actions? Really, really important. And the last one is go. You have to go and test the water, go by doing, learn by doing, and understand that the perfectionism uh, uh, paralysis that exists in a lot of these different, whether it's projects, presentations, businesses, doing something for your own personal health and family, whatever that is, don't be so afraid of not releasing uh, that until it's perfect because it's never going to be perfect. Life isn't perfect. And that's a part of how we go through these experiences. And so you have to go out there and get after it. I wonder what you think about some of the younger athletes who will be competing in the games. Um, I think about Eileen Gu, who is the California born and raised skier who will now be competing for China in the 2022 games. And full disclosure, her mom is from China. You're half Japanese, so you're Asian American. I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on her decision, especially since we're in this moment in time when there's a lot of anti-Asian hate out there and people are very quick to judge her on switching sides, calling her a traitor. This is not unusual for athletes to compete for another country. I mean, the U.S. also imports athletes as well. So it's, it's not like it doesn't happen. Yeah. So I think that this is, and, and we've seen this both in short track speed skating. Um, look, we don't know what's going on in the minds uh, of those athletes and the decisions that are actually occurring in real time. Um, and I think something that 
all of us need to, to exercise is, you know, just because our fundamental beliefs are through our own lens and visibility doesn't necessarily mean we have the right to export that belief on someone who we don't understand. Now, in regards to this particular situation, obviously it's very sensitive. The geopolitical uh, uh, challenges that are existent between the U.S. and China are very, very relevant, and they're very front of mind right now. So, I, I, look, the last thing that I ever want to see is an athlete being used as the catalyst and or pawn between a larger game between two rival countries. It just, it's just really, really challenging to utilize that, right? Um, the athlete is there to compete as best as they possibly can. The decisions in which they make, right, wrong, good, bad, doesn't really matter, right? It's, it's up to them to live their life in that way. And so I, I don't understand um, what goes on the mind of any athlete. Right. I mean, there were several American athletes that went overseas and competed for other countries as well from our speed skating team. Um, there were star athletes who moved from South Korea to Russia to compete in the 2014 Games. So I don't know the incentivization structures that exist for those decisions. I, I'm assuming that they would be something of interesting. Um, but I, I, again, I, I just don't know. It definitely is a sensitive time. Um, I, you know, when I was competing, it, was, it, it never crossed my mind to compete for any other country except for the U.S. It was like a non-starter conversation. Um, and I took a lot of pride in that, right? I felt that that was actually an advantage, um, regardless of other technological advances that other teams and, and coaches and countries had. I don't know. And maybe that was very naive of me to believe, but I just fundamentally believe that me being American, having this diversity um, of coaching and interaction in the way that we approach sport was actually the ultimate of advantages. And um, I wanted to showcase that. Apollo, mental health issues. We've seen it with Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles in the Olympics. This is the ultimate pressure cooker for athletes. Is this something that's been percolating for years? Look, the, the, I think anything that revolves around ultra-high performance and intense situation is always going to have a uh, another side of that psychological process that is perhaps very damaging, scary, and, and, and dangerous. Um, the, mental as the mental health aspect of Olympic athletes in the past has always been there. I think the conditioning mechanism that all of us have lived in is this idea that strength is defined by a very black and white term, meaning you have to be strong, you show no emotion, you're a warrior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think as we move towards a much more comprehensive and complex and also open society in which we're willing to talk about these things in real time, you see athletes coming out and saying like, hey, I have gone through hell reaching this point in time. And my sport is dangerous, and I don't feel well. But really, aside from all of those things, I think the most important thing is we've seen both teammates of mine and friends of mine take their own lives in pursuit of those games, not even being at the games, but actually in pursuit, where their deepest, darkest fears and voices are the ones that are maintaining control over that person's psyche. And this is not unlike what we've seen in the military or anyone else in this country who has faced with real mental health challenges. And the fact that we're able to talk about these things openly shows me that we have progress, shows me that this is something that is important to us as a society, and also showcases to the world that says, hey, you've put these athletes on a pedestal for so long and for good reason. But also don't ever forget the fact that they are still human. They're just like you and I. 
They just simply do something solely dedicated for their entire life, and they happen to be exceptional at that. But they still have the same conversations. I did. I still had the same insecurities and self-doubts. Am I good enough? Am I ever going to be good enough? Is it going to be good enough? Fears of failure, right? Whatever these things are, they can be paralyzing or they can be used as incredible catalysts for growth and to propel you towards your goal. And so I think in the past, we never had that outlet to talk about. It wasn't a part of the system, right? The Olympic Games as a whole still is generally designed to churn medals. That's the idea is to go perform, to get as many medals as possible, to create those sponsorship opportunities. And that is the commercialization behind the games. And I think that something when we can go beyond the level and texture associated with that statement is saying these Olympic athletes have so much more to give to our communities and societies. They need to be treated as such. And so if there is challenges, Let's help them work through those so they could still be their best self. They could still pursue the sport that they love to do. In addition, providing that example to the rest of the world and to our country that, hey, if you're not okay, let's figure out how we can get you to a state where you're living a life that is well-lived versus one that you feel like you're in a prison between your own two years. I'd like to ask you about your personal financial management advice because you were named a financial hero by the company Personal Capital. Tell us about that, because like you said earlier, you're one of the lucky ones with the name recognition and the sponsorship and the money came in. Can you tell us about how you managed your money like that? Yeah, well, I, I can tell you twofold. And I, I talk a lot about, about talk a lot about this in, in my book. Um, you know, I, I had no formal kind of guidance and education around finance, something that I became very interested in uh, when I retired. But for the most part, I had to learn through my own mistakes and, and issues. And so the real idea here is how do we create an environment where we're talking about these kind of very specific and important issues around finances for our own personal lives and making sure that we're remaining focused on the fact. And so something that I've seen that we all know and understand is we spend so much of our time zoomed in on the nitty-gritty details, and there's this comparative analysis that exists in all of us, right? That's how competition thrives. But when we're constantly comparing what this person has, this person's so young, he's accomplished, she's accomplished so much at such a young age, such a young age all of the different avenues of monetization that exists from all the new types of businesses and, and startups and verticals that people are exploring now, um, <clears throat> it's easy to become very distracted. And the number one focal point that we've always had is zoom out. What is important to you and how do you remain focused on that path? Because doing the deepest of work and doing the actual work is not only the shortcut, it's also the lowest hanging fruit in a world that's filled with distraction, filled with everything that's trying to hijack and grab your attention for 5, 10, 15 minutes at a time. And so as with anything like the Olympic path, it's not done overnight. It's not done in one year. It's not even done in two years. These things take four to eight and sometimes 12 years of compounding of daily training dedication, sacrifice, and persistence in order to have the greatest value of compounded return over time. But those things are done incrementally, just like we have in finance. And so some of the greatest investors on the planet had done the same thing where they've taken very long-term views and approaches in terms of being dedicated and focused. And the, the reason why that's so hard is because we love instant gratification. 
And in a world where we are really promoting that in every essence, every button you press, every interaction that you have gives you that smallest of dopamine rushes. And so the ones who are able to maintain that control, I think you have a real edge um, over your personal finances in life. I like what you said about instant gratification because it can feel that way when we're watching the Olympics and seeing these incredible athletes perform well and and achieve their goals. And because we, we don't necessarily know a lot about them in the intervening years while they're training. And then we learn about them as we get closer to the Olympics. We root for them. And there's that instant gratification, like they did it. And of course, yes, there's the backstory of how they trained for this all their lives. But the American public doesn't always know the backstory. We just kind of jump in towards the end, right when they're about to compete. I'm curious, Apollo, to hear about how you're going to do your job this Winter Olympics as a short track analyst uh, when you're not going to be in Beijing. How are you going to be broadcasting remotely? How are you going to be analyzing the races? So there's a big change this year. <clears throat> as you mentioned, I won't be in Beijing. You know, I'll be spending most of my time bouncing between uh, Stanford, Connecticut, and also in Park City. And so for the first time, we're doing these kind of live-to-tape. Uh, I'll be bouncing around the different hospitality houses, mingling with the different uh, both sponsors, but also talking about the sport in a way that hopefully can shed some light into what's happening. Um, I very much wanted to be in Beijing. Uh, I really, I actually really enjoy the city. Um, I love being there live to see the athletes compete. And so being able to do so is a combination of just communicating with the coaches and athletes in real time which I've been doing. I've been getting updates and people sending me pictures about what's happening. I actually went to the actual send-off at LAX pre-athlete uh, uh, before they got on their flight to see all the athletes board their flight as they went on that charter all the way to Beijing. So it's going to be a very, very different time. Apollo Ono, speed skater extraordinaire, Scarlet Foo, Bloomberg business finance extraordinaire, Mike Lynch, who is the sports extraordinaire. And then you're going to come to me, Captain Silly Goose, because I love game shows. You were a game <laughs> show host, and you were on the show Minute to Win It. I love that game show because I'm an old geek because it's kind of like a version of the old Beat the Clock. You have to tell me about that before we let you go. <laughs> so one of the the most um, blessed experiences I've had post-Olympic career <clears throat> is the fact that we've been approached by many different organizations and entertainment companies to participate in things like this, whether it was Dancing with, dancing with the Stars, um, I went on that twice, whether it's hosting game shows, doing cameos. These were all a part of my own reinvention, right? So as I mentioned before, like – I lived in this environment where I did one thing all day, every day. That's all I cared about. That's all I thought was important. And so as a part of that reinvention was for me to say yes and to say yes to as many opportunities and chances as possible, even if I was afraid of doing them, even if I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, even if that voice inside my head said that, hey, what are you doing? Like, why are you going out of your lane? Stick to what you're good at. But that's, that's not living to me, and that was really important. So that game show was – really hard to, to film, but it was it was really amazing at the same time where it forces you to get in these uncomfortable zones and environments and learn on the fly, just like everything else in life. So very grateful for that chance. Go, baby. Go. That's what it's all about. Apollo Ono, thank you so much. You were so kind to stop by and, and give us your time and, and your knowledge. Again, thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Scarlett, I, I, I just, what a, a joy to talk to him. And I really meant it. The knowledge that he dropped on us was important. I didn't get to ask him how often he skates now and whether he skates in speed skates or hockey skates or figure skates. I mean, that's just my own curiosity. But <laughs> it's so interesting to hear um, the story of former Olympians and how they use that currency and how they move forward. And he's a good example of someone who can articulate how how much dedication, single-minded focus it takes to become an Olympian, and then the pivot that's required, the the rethink, the reset that's required to kind of rejoin um, civilian life <laughs> in a way. You know, I, I like the fact that he recognized people who don't make it to the podium. They they work yes. for years yeah. and years and years to get there. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to translate for him. You don't necessarily have to have a medal around your neck to be a winner or a champion. Yeah, there are many people that participate in the Olympics. First of all, that's an achievement in itself mm-hmm. sure. to get to the Olympics. And, and, I mean, this man made it way above and beyond. We're talking eight-time medalists, two gold, two silver, four bronze in the Winter Olympics. I mean, that, that's really doing something. And, and listening, listening to him talk, uh, he's such a humble man, and it's, it really is a pleasure. And the journey doesn't him. end, right? It's, right? it's always a constant, um, yeah. not reinvention, but a constant reassessment, revaluation. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. You know what it's time for. It's time now for the number of the week. Come on out here, everybody. We are going to now see. I, first, I was going to talk about the the Patriots and their valuation, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not even fair because then you know, Lynchy <laughs> is New like, England bias. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Lynchy is like, you know, why, why don't you ask me how many fingers I got on my hand? You know, so. But this one, uh, we're going to talk about the state of Virginia. Now, more than half of Virginia's sports betting went untaxed last year, according to the state lottery. What I want to know is, 
in total for the first year of legal betting, what did they take in? In taxes or no. just in overall bets? Overall bets last year. Ooh. I was just texting with someone who was the head of the D.C. lottery a couple days ago. I'm going to do my usual routine, Bart. When was gambling legalized in Virginia for the entire year? It was uh, state's first year of legal betting. Full year. Full year. I'll even give you a hint. Mm -hmm. I'll even give you a hint. Please. 155 million of it was supposed to be taxable. 155 million of it? Was supposed to be taxable. Dollars? Dollars. <laughs> yes. I don't know. <laughs> no. Boardwalk Park Place. Just throw it all Correct. in there. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say $786 million, just to throw out a number. Lynch. Is this how much was wagered? This is uh, uh, this is what the operators made in the state's first year of legal betting. The revenue they took in. The revenue they took in. Two and a half billion. This one was way lower than I thought. Uh, 155 million of the 285 million operators made in the state's first year of legal betting was not subject to Virginia taxes thanks to a law that allows massive deductions for free promotional bets and losses per data that was released by the state lottery. So I was way off, but I won? You, you were way off, but you won. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in your face, Lynchy. That's right. And Mike, listen, we have some here. lovely parting gifts. You get rice aroni, and you also get the Lee press on nails that everybody's been talking about. Do we have penalties for taunting? <laughs> I think I think I think Scarlett is guilty of taunting. I'm going to throw a flag on that. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. We are here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. Sometimes it's big money, sometimes it's smaller money. In hmm. the case of this week's number of the week, I'm Scarlett Foo. I'm at Scarlett Foo. All right, and we're going to review that penalty flag, but I think the penalty <laughs> is going to be upheld. Taunting on Scarlett Foo. <laughs> Meantime, we'll catch you next week. I'm Mike Lynch at Lynchy WCBB. Well, looks like Lynchy isn't doing the happy dance this week, is he? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next week for the latest on the stories moving big money in the world of sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports right here. Bloomberg Radio, around the world. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.